Hello, and welcome to PW's LitCast, a podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors creating fiction books that range from sci-fi, mystery, to graphic novels. I'm Lenny Picker of Publishers Weekly, and today I'll be speaking with Terry Roberts, whose That Bright Land is published by Turner Publishing, the sponsor of today's podcast. Terry, hi. Would you start by reading part of the book for our listeners? I will be glad to, Lenny. It's in the voice of a man named Jacob Ballard, who is a Civil War veteran, and it's the summer of 1866. In that summer, I went down south to find and kill a man. It's not what I would have chosen, and when I first arrived in the territory, I didn't want to admit that's what I was about. Nevertheless, I was well suited to the task by my past and by the shadows it cast in my soul. I was given this assignment by the wartime governor of North Carolina, a man named Zeb Vance, who also happened to be my blood uncle and my enemy during the war. When I first talked to Vance, he described the situation in Western North Carolina as extremely volatile. So I said, you're telling me that Union veterans are dying out. I understand that, but why are Union veterans down there in the first place? Because, Jacob, Vance said, even though the mountains sent thousands of men like me and my brother into the Confederate Army, they also sent hundreds over into Tennessee to join up with the feds. The 2nd and 3rd North Carolina Mounted Infantry were federal troops based in Tennessee, made up mostly of men from western North Carolina, and just as many Madison County men ended the war wearing blue as they did gray. Good for them, I said, feeling the need to remind the old man where my own allegiances lay. But now you say they're suddenly dying out. From wounds? From disease? Hell no, or at least not from war wounds, from gun and knife, and one of them was hung in his own tobacco barn. Somebody's killing them off. You sure none of this is self-slaughter, I asked. You mean suicide, he asked incredulously. I nodded. Suffering from what we call the soldier's heart. The veteran can't sleep no matter how much he drinks, and if he does, the nightmares consume him. Things he thought and did in the war rise up, and he can't escape the memories no matter. Only way out is a rope or a pistol. Hell no, he said, a flush rising into his cheeks again. These men aren't killing themselves. Hell, some of them have been murdered in their own bed, shot through the windows of their own homes. Some of your damn rebels don't want the war to be over, I said. Some of them don't know when they've been whipped. Vance only laughed, which apparently he did a lot. Maybe, but what I want you to do is go down there and find out who in God's name is doing this. They have to be stopped before they raise up the whole countryside. Thank you, Terry. And without spoiling the plot for our listeners, could you just put that section in the context of the novel? Essentially, Jacob Ballard is a man who was born and raised in western North Carolina but who was taken away by his mother, a widow, when he was 10 years old and he was raised in Pennsylvania. And so what happens to him during the war, as he's a Yankee veteran, is that after being wounded, losing most of his left hand at Fredericksburg, he becomes a Pinkerton agent, a kind of uh, local spy, if you will, both in Washington, D.C., and eventually he ends up being involved in the search for the killers of President Lincoln. And so he has a reputation as a cold-hearted, intelligent man. And in essence, he's being asked to go back home to Western North Carolina, where he was born, where he spent his childhood, 
and to find what we would call a serial killer, someone who's killing off Yankee veterans from the war in this very isolated part of the South in the southern mountains. Now, I understand that there's something of a family connection to the plot of the novel. Could you talk a little bit about that? I'd be glad to. I first became interested in this when someone, a distant relative, sent me the pension records of a man named Benjamin Franklin Freeman, who happens to be my great-great-grandfather. Ben Freeman's unusual in that he first fought for the Confederate Army during the war. He deserted the Confederate Army. Eventually, when the Home Guard began to come snooping around to, to arrest him as a deserter, he crossed the mountains into Tennessee and he joined the 2nd North Carolina Mounted Infantry and in the course of the coming months probably fought for two different regiments, the 2nd and 3rd North Carolina Mounted Infantry, federal troops. So when we think about a horrible national tragedy in which brother fought brother, you can, in his instance, see an even clearer example of the war in which we fought ourselves. In his case, he and his brother fought for both armies, for both sides. And then when they came back home, they suffered a lot of the personal trauma that we don't remember about life after the war. Divorce, disease, bankruptcy, violent interfamiliar conflict where Again, cousin is firing at cousin, but not during the war itself, but months after the war was over. And so that became the genesis of this book, if you will. So you said you got the pension records from a relative. Do you have any idea how they were handed down to the family, something that were records that were like a century and a half old? These records are actually uh, Xerox copies of material that's stored in the Federal Archives in Washington, D.C. This is almost a kind of Ancestry.com story in a way, Lenny. Uh, This person requested the records, uh, paid for them. They were sent to her as as Xerox copies. And the interesting thing about it is the Xerox copies are in longhand. So when I got them, what I got were very detailed records, but written out in this kind of archaic longhand, including some, some... archaic language from the 1880s, and so it became a kind of um, a fun exercise in decoding the past before I could really begin to understand what these people were like and what their lives were like. And before getting access to the record and doing the decoding, had you heard of this relative from members of your family, or was this a complete surprise to you? No, I had heard of him. Ben Freeman was often talked about sort of jokingly as the first divorce in the extended Roberts family. He came home after the war, having fought both for the South and then for the North, to a very angry wife, Harriet Payne Freeman. Uh, Some people call her the meanest woman in Madison County. I don't know if that's being fair or not, and I expect to get a phone call from some Payne relatives over that description. But at any rate, when he came home, she was so furious with him for having abandoned the family not once but twice during the course of the war that they had a falling out. Lots of stories, some of which I think have to be apocryphal uh, from their marriage. But eventually they parted ways and he and he moved to the other side of the mountain, as it's told in family lore, built a log cabin and they lived out the rest of their days legally separated, having divided the property, 
but never divorced. And so part of the pension records actually come from her petition for relief after his death, much later in the century. So you've got this incredible family drama, not to not to give it all away, and not all of it's recorded in the book. In fact, you get a kind of uh, sanitized version almost of Freeman family history in the novel because there was manslaughter, there was venereal disease, there was divorce, a good deal of acrimony and 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 family violence, let's say. <laughs> So were there many other soldiers who ended up fighting for both sides in the Civil War? It's not something I'd heard of before. It's interesting. One thing that happened is that Confederate soldiers, particularly from regions like Western Virginia, West Virginia, Western North Carolina, Eastern Tennessee, that were very much, uh, they were not slaveholding areas because they were so mountainous that very few families could afford to own slaves. And very few families had the kind of land holdings that made slave labor worthwhile, if you will. So, for example, in Madison County, North Carolina, uh, on the day that the referendum was held on whether or not North Carolina should secede from the Union, Madison County actually voted against secession. And on that day, there was gunfire in the county seat, and in fact, the county sheriff was killed. So that's the kind of violence that was going on around this question before the war ever started. Um, So most men from western North Carolina, as an example, fought for the South, and they were in the Southern Army for the entire war. However, a number of men who were captured were given the opportunity Uh, if they chose to, to denounce the South and join the Union Army. So if it was early in the war and you were faced with the question of do I spend the next two, three, four years in a prison camp and very likely die, as one of my ancestors did uh, at Camp Douglas, or do I change coats, if you will, literally, the idea that, thus the idea of a turncoat, and join the Union Army? A lot of Southern men took advantage of that opportunity, particularly men from regions that didn't have this die-hard sort of loyalty to the Southern cause. So Ben Freeman and his brother George, they didn't change sides because they were captured and given that opportunity. They changed sides because they went off to war on what they thought was going to be a lark might last five or six months, time away from angry wives, a free rifle, if you will. Uh, They decided they didn't like the Army experience, and so they deserted and came back home. Well, what they hadn't counted on was the Home Guard, if you will, um, who were coming out and searching for deserters, and in many cases, executing them out of hand. And so they and a number of other men from this region, uh, this part of North Carolina, crossed over into Tennessee and joined the Union Army. I'd like to say it was because they had some sense of loyalty to the Union, but in very few cases was that true. In most instances, it was um, a realistic response to a horrible dilemma of whose side do you join and, and, you know, later on in the war, who's most likely to win the war. One of the things that I I thought was a clever touch was the cover story you gave uh, Mr. Ballard to... Uh, be the ostensible reason why he was down so he could actually investigate the murders. You had him there as uh, checking to see whether uh, Army veterans were in fact committing fraud on the government by putting in for disability payments. Is that something, those sort of checks, that sort of fraud, something that went on at the time of the Civil War or right after? You know, it's interesting, Lenny. I 
I don't know. Uh, I've never read any statistics on this, but when you read the records themselves, the interviews, and in some cases, of course, men had lost arms, legs, hands, eyes. The physical evidence of their wounds were incontestable. But on the other hand, there are other kinds of wounds that would be easy to, I don't know, use, if you will, to gain some sort of fraudulent access to disability pensions. Benjamin Franklin Freeman claimed that he was paralyzed on the right-hand side of his body. And I read this years ago in the records for uh, his regiment, and uh, which had a, a... section, if you will, for how men left the army. Well, he left claiming a disability. When you actually dig down into the records, what you discover is that the examiner very questioned him very closely. And in fact, in the reports, the early reports, his request for disability payments were denied because it was impossible for him to show that this, uh, this paralysis, if you will, was real, A, and B, did it stem from anything that happened in the war? Well, that, you know, again, that's a case in point, but it opens up the possibility, of course, that any number of men, uh, if they were clever enough, could have claimed a disability for physical wounds that happened after the war or for some sort of psychological or emotional damage that's almost impossible to prove. And, and one of the fascinating things for me about all of this is, of course, is that we believe that PTSD is somehow a modern phenomenon, and yet the the history of the period after the Civil War shows that thousands of men from both the North and the South suffered from the emotional impact of what they saw and did during the Civil War. And so part of this, it was called in those days it was called the soldier's heart, uh, that that phenomenon of depression and anxiety that came from having served in the army. And that, of course, would be almost impossible to prove, particularly in an age that didn't understand the psychological impact of that kind of trauma. So those sort of claims for disability based on soldier's heart would have been routinely denied? I think so. I think so. Unless it was so obvious, unless somebody, the psychological damage that had been done to somebody was so obvious that it couldn't be denied. But I suspect, again, this is a long time. The, the word psychology didn't exist, as we like to say in those days. And so I'm guessing that um, that kind of inner wound was not something that we knew how to examine or how to treat. So I'm guessing those were typically denied. Okay. So you set the book in the summer of 1866. So forgive my ignorance, if it had been said a year or two later, 1867, 1868, what would have, what historically had changed in, in the region that you were writing about that would have altered the contours of the plot, again, without uh, giving the developments away to the reader? Yeah, I think it's interesting because you, 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 you ask a very insightful question for this reason. The early drafts of the novel were set uh, in later in time two, three, four, five years after the end of the war. As I worked on the book, however, I realized that what existed in the period of time immediately following the war is the chance that what had been an armed conflict between 
armies that represented legal governments, at least the South thought their government was a legal government, those armies, when they disbanded in the spring and summer of 1865, there is a lot of historical evidence to suggest that they might have gone on to fight a guerrilla war, particularly in areas like eastern Tennessee, western North Carolina, where the terrain gave them, would have given southern guerrillas the opportunity to continue the fight for years to come. And so uh, Robert E. Lee was very sensitive to this. He made a point of telling the, the his army, the Army of Northern Virginia, both officers and men, that they had fought a good fight, but it was time to go home. Abraham Lincoln was very sensitive to this. It was one of the reasons why he was so interested in being kind to the South during Reconstruction, so that the violence would end. And so this kind of personal violence that had gone on in Western North Carolina that that bright land deals with, it's, it's a tip of the iceberg, if you will, and what Vance tells Ballard is that this has to be solved before the countryside rises up in arms, and there are armed bands of Union sympathizers, maybe former Union troops, roving the countryside doing battle with Confederate sympathizers, quite probably former Confederate troops, and so this this, this kind of simmering, um, the hot coals left over after the war could burst into flame again. So what I realized in working on early drafts of the book is that if I move the action up to the period of time right after the war, that would give me the opportunity to add a certain level of suspense and volatility, if you will, that it would not have had five or ten years later. And and I think that was very real, um, in places like Western North Carolina, where men didn't just come home exhausted from the fight, they came home carrying all kinds of resentments uh, for personal and family feuds, if you will, that had flamed up during the war. So I know that uh, Turner is reissuing uh, another work of yours, A Short Time to Stay Here, which you, you won a prize for, for the Willie Morris Prize for Southern Fiction. What's up next for you? I'm working on a novel now set during Prohibition. Um, it, it, it's main character, a man that I like quite a lot, I've, as I've gotten to know him during the writing, is both an evangelist and a bootlegger. Um, they travel the countryside, a traveling tent show, if you will, and out of one of the boxcars on the, on the evangelical train, it's, the train itself is called the Sword of the Lord, and out of one of the boxcars on the train, they sell Bibles out of one door, and out of the opposite door, on the other side of the same car, they sell bootleg corn whiskey and brandy. I'm, I was fascinated by this kind of collision between religion and alcohol, and the question of whether or not, I think America has had a long fascination with both, and in fact, in a way, it's kind of characteristic of us that, that we're, we're interested in religious mysticism and then in a way almost the same kind of mysticism that uh, is the result of, of, of alcohol. And so when these two things collided, if you will, in American history, was particularly during Prohibition because Prohibition, of course, was that time period when it was the religious forces, the churches themselves in many instances that led the fight to make alcohol illegal in the United States. Um, and yet at the same time, you wonder what 
uh, many religious men and women feared so much about alcohol. So it's an interesting case in point. Both of my first two books were set either during wartime, World War One, in the case of A Short Time to Stay Here, or just after war, when war is still a distinct possibility, that bright land. There's no war in this case, but there is a kind of cultural war that's going on between the Anti-Saloon League and the KKK. The KKK was most active in the United States, all over the United States, by the way, during the 1920s, in other words, during Prohibition. So you had those very Protestant, hyper-religious forces on the one hand, and then on the other hand, you had all the cultural forces that have to do with uh, making and consuming and, by the way, selling alcohol. So there's a war going on but it's a kind of internal war, if you will, a civil war over who we are and what we believe about those things. Um, the working title of the book is All the Rivers Run, uh, from the same passage in Ecclesiastes that gave us the sun also rises. And, and so I'm interested to see how this turns out, and um, that's what's next. All right. Well, I'll be interested in reading it. Uh, thank you, Terry, for your time today. Uh, the book, again, is That Bright Land from Turner Publishing. Thank you for listening, and join us soon for the next LitCast. <laughs>